Welcome to episode 11 of Regulate Tech with me, Niklas Beard Lundblad, and with me, Richard Allen. Well, Richard, today we're going to tackle one of the most intricate and most complex issues of internet policy, which is jurisdiction. And when you hear jurisdiction, your first reaction may not be that this sounds like an exciting and and completely revolutionary topic that we should all get right, but it turns out to be quite important. So why why should we care about jurisdiction? Sounds like a sounds like something out of an police flick. Do you have <laughs> jurisdiction over this crime? What what is the what is the substance here that we should care about? I I mean, the reality is that laws are made generally on a national or sometimes subnational level. So countries make laws and every person who connects to the internet is is governed by law. Sometimes people talk about it as lawless. It's not. You know, (laughs) um, people, when they connect to internet services and do things, live in a country and it's the laws of the country where those people live that are most relevant for deciding whether the actions they're carrying out on the internet are right or not. So jurisdiction, where you live, really, really matters for you as an individual user of the internet. But also, every internet company exists somewhere. And again, it, it may have like machines all around the world, <laughs> um, but as a legal entity... There is a company, there's a company, uh, it's not called Google anymore, is it Alphabet, uh, uh, that that runs all the Google services. That is an American company. Uh, There's a company like ByteDance, which runs services like TikTok, and that's a Chinese company. And so in that case, the jurisdiction, the fact that ByteDance is a Chinese company means Chinese law is the most important piece of law for ByteDance. The fact that Alphabet is an American company means that American law is most important uh, for that company. And then equally, any internet company anywhere around the world has some kind of home jurisdiction where it is legally established. So matters for the users, matters for the companies. Now, the fun bit is that unlike the old non-digital, non-internet world where typically all of the parties to some kind of transaction were in the same jurisdiction – Occasionally, they were outside doing import and export, but you know they're pretty pretty well sort of simple chains. The internet has created a world in which, in any particular transaction or interaction, you could have parties in like many many different jurisdictions all involved, and then you've got to figure out well whose law applies here. Right. And so the early examples that that sort of baffled lawyers everywhere were things like user A is in Sweden and communicates with user B, who's in the UK, over a server that is now in the United States in California with a piece of software that was made in Hungary and whose law should actually apply. Now, those kinds of examples, they were, they, were, they were taken quite seriously in the beginning, right? When people had discussions about jurisdiction and how to figure out this policy, et cetera. And, then, and one of the really early proposals was that, well, you know what? All of these things need to be ignored. And what we should say instead is that the internet is its own jurisdiction. So there's an early famous uh, paper, uh, Borders Without Law, Law Without Borders, I don't remember, <laughs> by David Post and David Johnson, who suggested that, well, look, the, the reality is that it's better for us to start treating the internet as its own separate jurisdiction. And then we can decide which law applies to the internet and what happens on the internet, rather than try to analyze it apart into its subcomponents and its its jurisdictions. Now, why didn't that work? Because we can quite clearly see today that it didn't happen. What do you think was the 
Could it have gone differently and why didn't it work? I, I think we might have started down that route, but I think pretty quickly it would have uh, proved to be unviable. And and I'm saying that as somebody sitting here in the United Kingdom, I'm, I'm uh, not obsessed with Brexit. We're all moving on, but uh, the Brexit <laughs> debate is very relevant here, even at the European Union level. And that's a relatively small group of countries who are trying to essentially create this kind of supranational framework that applies to all of them, even with this relatively small group on on not all issues, and many of the most sensitive issues are excluded from the EU, even there, we struggle. And you saw what happened with the United Kingdom, where, where a majority of people in the United Kingdom uh, um, supported the position that uh, um, having sovereignty over our own laws, being able to make our own rules, uh, in other words, strengthening our own jurisdiction was more important even than trade and commerce and all these other arguments that were weighed on the other side. And so I think this notion that countries are willing to give up uh, jurisdiction by saying, well, if you're on the internet, you don't need to follow the laws we've made in our parliament. You can follow the laws made by whatever body is creating the laws of the internet. I just don't think that's realistic. And I think the last few years have shown us, if anything, we're, we're kind of moving in the opposite direction where countries with the support of their people, and we shouldn't say it's, like, it's not like government's doing this out of nowhere, um, parties that advocate for stronger national jurisdiction are actually doing really quite well at the moment, whether that's the United States, the UK, or many other countries within Europe. And so, uh, uh, yes, logically and rationally, some of this sort of pooled sovereignty would make sense or some kind of shared jurisdiction for areas of the internet. But meanwhile, back in the sort of political real world, I, I don't think it's realistic to think that many governments are going to be willing to give up anything important. Um, and so all the key areas, and we can think about laws around speech, what you can and can't say, trade, uh, laws around taxation, governments are going to want to assert their jurisdiction in all of those areas, and they're not going to give it up. Um, technical standards, yes, fine. Like, who cares? You know, uh, What does an <laughs> internet packet look like? Yeah, governments are not excited about that, but they're really excited about these other things. Um, and so, and again, nice idea, very rational, very logical, uh, arguably a bit like the EU, but in reality, the politics kind of intrudes. And I think that there was a willingness to try this in the beginning. If you go back to one of the landmark cases, one of the early cases that sort of really tried this theory, uh, you go back to the Yahoo case in France, where, where Yahoo was, um, if I remember the details correctly, they were accused of having sold Nazi memorabilia. And the association combating anti-Semitism in France essentially said, you can't offer that here because it's illegal to offer it in France. Now, interesting, what happened next was, was sort of trying... Uh, a fundamental, I think, hypothesis in a lot of the internet philosophy that existed at the time. Because Yahoo said, well, we can't. The technology doesn't allow us to know if a user is from France or not. And there's no way we can discriminate and sort of shut off France from these particular goods. Uh, it's just not possible. Essentially having an impossibility plea on the table. Now, what then happened uh, was quite surprising, I think, to to most people. Um, do you recount the call? Do you recall the case? Uh, um, I do. But I, the, you, you, I think you're going to have me de- give me the details. As I, I remember the case where .fr domains had to show different stuff from .com domains. Um, and I, if that's the case we're talking about, then then I'm there. Um, yes. Uh, and and, yeah. and 
And, and and one of the things was that they actually invited a lot of technical experts, and the technical experts to to Matbruhaha said, well, it's quite possible within the IP protocol to see where somebody is coming from. You can pinpoint it with a plus ninety percent security or the certainty, sorry, and and you can say that people are are coming from France, and if they're coming from France, if they're coming from the 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 sort of internet protocol space that is designated as French in some sense, you should block access to these products that are being sold or offered or these pictures or whatever it was that was being showcased on on Yahoo. So Yahoo lost the case on two grounds. One, that French law applied. Now, the French have a tendency to think that that's true for the world. Uh, They have a a sort of expansive, exorbitant view of of jurisdiction, which is entirely within their rights. Um, But also because the impossibility plea failed. Uh, It was quite possible within the IP protocol to determine the nationality of the people accessing services, even across the internet. So, so early on, this notion that the technology was designed to to make it impossible to to see what country you were coming from, uh, and hence also make it impossible to to determine jurisdiction, uh, was disproven. And after that, I think things followed in quite close succession. Let's talk about your three areas. Let's start with speech. How should we think about jurisdiction in speech? Well, so this does sort of highlight one of the classic challenges. I'm I'm sitting here in the United Kingdom. Um, if I run out in the street now and I start shouting, you know, the kinds of hate speech that would be illegal in the United Kingdom, then I'm going to be offending other people in the United Kingdom who are in the street who are going to call a British police officer, I'm going to get hauled before a British judge, tried under British law, and potentially found guilty. So that's the sort of the classic uh, uh, way in which speech laws are enforced. And if I was in the US and I ran out and shouted the hate speech and somebody called the police, police would go, well, no, that's protected speech. <laughs> There's nothing we're going to do. Um, and, and if I was in another country, again, whatever laws they had would apply. So that's the sort of classic within jurisdiction scenario. Now, what happens frequently on the internet is, you know, I may say something that is entirely legal in Britain, uh, but illegal, for example, in Germany, Uh, and uh, somebody in Germany may hear my speech uh, and decide that they have a problem with it. And then the question becomes, they may go to the German police. Uh, uh, The German police may say, well, let's look at, you know, where this is happening. Well, it's happening on a service offered by an American company. Uh, And you start then saying, well, whose law is going to apply? Um, American law, which would probably be very permissive about all of this speech. Uh, British law, which in this case, actually what I'm saying is okay under British law or German law where somebody has listened to it, been offended, and where the speech is clearly illegal. So those are the kind of scenarios we deal with all the time on the internet. And it's unpicking that and saying, well, what is the right balance uh, that works? There's been a a couple of cases recently that have been really interesting. I think there's one um, where somebody was threatened with prosecution for speech that they'd made uh, when they were on holiday. That's a really interesting thought. So, you know, if, if, in Britain, there are certain things that I could say that would be illegal in Britain. But if I'm on holiday in Spain and I say those things on the internet, um, really, Spanish law should apply. You know, if I if I mugged somebody in the street in London, the British police would investigate. When I'm on holiday in Spain, if I mug someone in the street, the British police won't investigate. It's the Spanish police under Spanish law. And so the same logically applies to speech offences. So there's these sort of questions of, you know, where somebody is, what nationality they belong to, 
uh, where they were when they spoke, who the listener was who was offended by this and reported it, who the service provider, all of this kind of creates quite a complex soup that we, we need to unpick. And early on, you know, the way that that many internet companies tried to approach this was quite interesting. They tried to set up, although there weren't any clear criteria, they tried to set up clear criteria for accepting jurisdiction. And and there, there were a couple of components of this that I think are intriguing and, and still have some validity. And one of them was whether or not they had launched a service under the top domain of that particular country. So you would say, for example, if I hadn't launched a service in Sweden under the .se top domain, um, I could not be held accountable to Swedish jurisdiction because it was obviously not my intent to offer my service to the Swedish population. And then that was sort of accrued over time. So you would have, are you deci- are you releasing it under this top domain? And then the next question would be, are you releasing it in this language? Because if your services are translated to Swedish, that's a clear indication that you're probably addressing, and this was the third criterion, who are you addressing, the audience, the sort of customers, the people you're trying to reach out to, are they actually the Swedes? So at that point, it would sort of boil down to the markets you were addressing as a service. So for internet companies, uh, translating a page could have quite a massive impact on their legal liabilities, right? Yeah, there's this idea of sort of services directed towards particular countries. And again, we've got to remember um, uh, that when you create a website, it's what we're typically talking about, and you connect the website to the internet. So I'm sitting here in London, I build a website, I create uh, an address, a domain that says uh, richardallen.com and connect it to my computer that is instantly accessible to everybody else who's connected to the internet, unless I take active steps to make it unavailable. So the default mode for an internet service is global. Um, uh, So there's a question of like, in a sense, when you build a website, you're offering it to the world. But just as you described, does does that constitute directing it towards a particular community? Or are there other steps and tests that you have to take? And in a lot of sense, we, we kind of retrofitted these tests. Um, you know, Google happens to use these, what they call top-level domains. It uses different country codes at the end of the Google address. Um, and so you could argue, well, in Google's case, that does give an indication that they intend to target that market. Facebook doesn't. Everything is Facebook.com. Uh, but Facebook clearly is is trying to win users in different markets around the world. So the top-level domain one, I think it was a bit of a kind of smoke and mirrors <laughs> game, I think, in a sense. It was sort of generated by the companies because they needed criteria to defend themselves for, for not being present in every country in the entire world. I mean, it's it's a little bit like somebody would take regular tech, your excellent blog, yeah. and say that it's actually offending several laws in Kyrgyzstan or Kazakhstan. And, and you would say, well, I am not present in Kazakhstan. I have no, I mean, I don't see how you can have jurisdiction. And and at that point, I think that the reality was that the internet companies then had to back out and reverse engineer criteria to figure out how their jurisdiction argument would be defensible. And the top domains, because they were national, turned out to be a scaffolding that you could you could hang your argument on. Exactly. Yes, it was a convenient scaffolding. And, and to an extent, I mean, we haven't really seen um, the crunch point in many cases yet. And we'll get, we'll get on to a couple of crunch points that there are. But um, most of the time, most of the problems that occur 
even though theoretically they involve these sort of massive global networks, they actually genuinely occur within individual countries. So the thing that um, there's a famous law in Thailand about criticizing the king of Thailand uh, and uh, the Les Majest law, and, and really what the Thai government are worried about is Thai people in Thailand, or indeed foreigners in Thailand, but people in Thailand criticizing their king. And that's really where the law is is intended to try and suppress dissent or suppress uh, speech that they believe will cause instability. And so so in theory, there is a problem <laughs> that the the Thai government could be trying to stop you know, two people in America talking about the Thai king. In practice, that that hasn't happened to a large degree. So most of these cases have been involved. The, the French case you cited, actually, the French government really were worried about um, people selling Nazi memorabilia in France to French people, and, and particularly French people selling it. Uh, um, they, they didn't really aggressively, I think, go after the fact that, you know, two people in America where it's perfectly legal could do that, even though no, in theory no, they could right. have done. So most of the time they've not gone after these global uh, they've not gone after stuff outside their own jurisdiction they mainly focus on their own jurisdiction there's been a really interesting case that's still sort of being kicked around or well, the implications are still being worked out that took place in austria and it was actually a facebook case and, and what happened was that a facebook user um called an austrian politician by names and and uh the names were in translation things like traitorous uh, oaf and corrupt and and use some sort of bad language about that politician um facebook had sort of initially declined to act on it and then i think i understand they did this thing which we call goip blocking so we've talked about where where um as you described earlier you can from an ip address with a reasonable degree of accuracy you know upper 90% accuracy understand where a connection is coming from and so eventually they, they put in some GOIP blocks, some, some stuff to restrict access to that content. And the Austrian court actually wanted the content removed globally. They wanted to make sure nobody anywhere could access this content. Um, and so they took it to the European Court of Justice and said, you know, can we make such an order? Um, and the European Court of Justice actually said, well, you, you have got latitude uh, to order this. It didn't say you must, but it said you may. <laughs> Uh, if you deem it to be necessary, you might make an order which says, Facebook, we're going to fine you if you don't remove this content entirely from your servers, not just make it so it's not visible in Austria. And that's interesting because it means you and I, Nicholas, if I'm, I'm sitting here in Britain, you're sitting there in Sweden, and and if we, if we were really interested in Austrian politics, I might say to you online, and we might type some messages out that kind of go, this Austrian politician, they're a traitorous oaf and corrupt and all of this stuff. And you might agree and go, yes. They're and in theory, under this judgment, uh, if that Austrian politician went to an Austrian court, the Austrian court could say to whichever platform we're using, you know, you've got to remove this content, even though it's between a British guy and a Swede who are totally outside our jurisdiction, the magic word, and who are not breaking any laws in the jurisdictions where they live. Um, and so it's cases like that. And I say it's not, we're not there yet. You, you would hope that if that came before an Austrian court, the Austrian court would sensibly go, sorry, Austrian politician, tough luck. You know, it's a Swede and a Brit and we're not going to get involved. Um, but they may be tempted to say, I'm going to defend the right of my Austrian politician and I'm going to order that speech to be taken down. 
And we, we should unpick this because there's something really interesting going on here, I think. And one of the things that 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 sort of jumps out at you is that neither you or I would be in the crosshairs for that uh, Austrian court. They wouldn't say to you and me that we have committed a crime in Austria and try to bring us in as UK and Swedish citizens to uh, be held responsible in Austrian court. They may ban us from going to Austria, which would be a pity because I do really like Vienna. <laughs> but but they, they wouldn't go after us with an extradition order. They couldn't. Because what happens at that point is that they run into the jurisdiction of other countries, which is why this Austrian court might actually pause or it might give them pause to sort of think that, okay, if we're doing this, we are going to claim that our law has precedence over the laws in Sweden and the UK. And that then turns it into a international law and an international diplomatic issue. So that's one thing that I think is really interesting. The other thing that's interesting is that they don't need to think about that because the only thing they need to think about is if there's a control point in their country, which is is Facebook actually open as a subsidiary and a company and a legal entity in Austria? If so, we'll direct the order at Facebook and it'll have the same effect without us having to have the nasty conversations with the UK and Swedish government. So that's a bit of a that's a bit of a difference, right? Where you can achieve and I, I think that you know the alternative then for Facebook would be to say no, and then they could be fined daily, like Yahoo was fined daily when they actually ended up saying no to the French court. Um, and you could be fined daily at exorbitant amounts until you leave the country or, or try to do something similar, right? That's right. And, and actually, in, in practices, you're right, the, the, the court will go after the intermediary, after the hosting service, saying that the hosting service is in breach of Austrian law by continuing to distribute this content. Although, actually, they're going even further. I mean, the, the, the GOIP blocking is supposed to deal with that piece. But they're actually saying, no, you're, going, you're actually in violation of our laws merely by hosting this content, even if you've made best efforts to stop it being distributed in Austria. Um, and in this case, actually, Facebook doesn't have a subsidiary in Austria. So they would go after Facebook Ireland, which is the European subsidiary, and, mm. and again, if this, we'll see. Maybe at some point this will happen, but the, the fines would be racked up, as you said, and then they would seek to extract the fines from Facebook Ireland, and then there's a whole set of international law principles that would then kick in as to whether or not Facebook Ireland should do to sort of turn up the money. Again, in practice, any, I think, of the main established publicly listed internet companies is is going to feel compelled to comply with court orders from, you know, uh, good rule of law countries. Uh, Which is a bit of a pity because the case you're describing is super interesting. If they were to the, say that you have no local representation in Austria yeah. and that you're stacking up fines for a subsidiary in Ireland, then for them to have a legal ground to go after the Irish uh, subsidiary, they would have to prove to an Irish court that their demand is legal not only in Austria, but also applicable um, uh, as a legal ground, recognized as a legal ground in Ireland which would mean that the Irish court at that point, if I understand this correctly, would have to determine that Austrian law can have a jurisdictional impact in Ireland. You see, this is how yeah, yeah. complicated jurisdiction <laughs> gets really, really quickly. And and it's it's not just in Austria. If you go to, for example, the right to be forgotten, uh, which is another interesting uh, discussion that we should have down the pike, we have seen that the French uh, Data Protection Authority has argued that in order to remove content under the European right to be forgotten, should 
uh, essentially be a global order so that you you cannot just forget things in Europe. There is no such thing as European forgetfulness. It has to be global. Something that was um, was not approved by the European Court of Justice. Um, but then you had two other alternatives. Should it be forgotten, forgotten just in France? Should we have... <laughs> French forgetfulness, or should we harmonize and have European forgetfulness? And we're sort of trending towards European forgetfulness. And the idea being that the GDPR should be uniformly applied across all of the European Union. Um, but that is that is another interesting example where, where we see governments and government agencies trending towards global jurisdiction in a way that, that uh, was a, not possible for the internet, and and B, not really in vogue before these last couple of years. Yeah. Why is, why is that happening? Because otherwise we've only seen, you've mentioned the Thai law, but there's also a Turkish law against the, the defamation of uh, Kemal Atatürk that they have required global application from internet companies for. I, I believe YouTube was blocked for a long time because of that. But, but usually democracies have been quite content with the Westphalia model where you control your territory and you don't claim global jurisdiction, but it's changing now. Why? Yeah, so, so I think there are two things. So one, one is um, technical and one is political. And again, just to tease that for those who, those who are sort of not deep in the weeds of this stuff, that um, the, the way in which you would restrict access in a particular country, I say, is you look at the IP address. Actually, if People are using, you know, uh, normal mobile phones on mobile phone networks. That you, you, you pretty reliably know that this particular uh, IP address belongs to Turksal and therefore is Turkish, or France Telecom and therefore is French. So you can you can sort of uh, get there in the, say the upper ninety percent accuracy range, but not a hundred percent. And um, people can get around it either accidentally because they happen to be using an odd configuration like a business network that that comes out onto the internet in a different country. So if you're in work for an American company, maybe you look like an American when you're using the internet at work rather than French or Turkish or whatever. Um, or it could be deliberate that you've bought a VPN service, a virtual private network service, specifically because you do want to appear to be coming from a different country. And what's happened at the technical level is you know, people who obviously want to restrict this content, people who are offended by a particular piece of content have gone to the courts and said, whoa, you know, but people in France or Turkey or Austria can still access this stuff. And they've called in technical experts and the technical experts have said, well, yes, they can. And the courts have gone, well, therefore my court order is being defied um, unless there's a, a global takedown. So part of it is that. And, and again, I don't think there is a solution other than, than just sort of weighing up the, the equities on both sides and saying, you know, surely a 90 plus percent solution or best effort solution where the company is trying to restrict access to people in a particular country should be sufficient. And we shouldn't insist on this 100 percent solution. If, if you do, we're always going to be taking stuff down globally. So that's on one side. On the on the other side is the political question, which, which is just the, the sort of assertiveness. There's a, a general uh, theme There will be types of content that are so offensive to a government somewhere that they really, really do actually want it removed from the entire internet. Um, it's not good enough uh, just to have it removed in their jurisdiction. In fact, the, the problem may be you know, even greater outside. So you imagine the kind of content, uh, um, if you're in Turkey, for example, content that casts doubt on the 
probity of the security services in Turkey. It's that sort of content that would be super, super problematic, I think, to the Turkish government. And if they're honest, they, they do want companies to remove it everywhere, not just within their own, uh, not just within Turkey. It matters to them that it's out there. At the moment, imagine how the Chinese government probably feels about content people are circulating around the Uyghur minority and what people are saying about that. You know, again, if Chinese government was part of the global enforcement system, it would want that content removed everywhere. Um, the fact that it's not visible in China is doesn't solve the problem as far as they're concerned. So I say, I say, you, I think you have a mix of both of those things, both courts uh, being told technically that blocks aren't 100% and saying, well, in that case, I'm going to have moved to global takedown because I want the 100%. And then you also have this sort of interplay between governments and largely US companies, where sometimes content is so problematic for a government that almost in a sort of, it's almost like a nationalistic uh, endeavor, but between a government and a company rather than between a government and another government. Um, but it, it's but, saying- But shouldn't it be though? Because I think that's that's the question I wanted to ask, because I feel that there it shouldn't be entirely outside of the realm of the possible that a government says, well, look, you can't take this down because our citizens have a right to see this. Now, imagine, for example, that um, imagine that X government says that you have to take down all content that uh, defames our great leader of some kind. Um, and then you could imagine the UK saying, no, absolutely not, because this content was um, published in the UK and it's under our laws. It's fully, you can fully freely defame this great leader, and that's firmly fine. And we're not going to allow you to take this down. And what would end up then is that both would direct their legal orders at the intermediary, who then will sit in between two countries' claim for jurisdiction and have no ability to do the right thing. Doesn't that suggest that we need a much better international? legal order when it comes to jurisdiction? I think we we need to find ways of resolving these conflicts of uh, law issues. And that's what we're sort of getting into this, this idea that, yes, a company can be given diametrically opposed orders by two countries um, for the same thing. I mean, at the moment, the way that that would be resolved, frankly, is that the the company would go with the jurisdiction that had the greatest claim over it. And so, again, this is this is where it really matters where a company is physically. Um, and again, you and I have both sort of been in, involved in this decision making. You know, your headquarters law is the most important. Let's be candid. If you're an American company, American law is not something you have any uh, discretion over complying with. You must comply. Full stop. End of story. And then you move to countries where you have large subsidiaries. And again, if you get a court order from a, a country where you have a large subsidiary, like, it would be really extraordinary for you in any way to defy it. And then you sort of move down the track to c- countries where you have no physical presence. Uh, people may be using your service, but you've got no people there. Uh, maybe it's a country where you're not particularly you know, focused on as a company. You, you were not really, again, you weren't really targeting it. it you just acquired a bunch of users. Uh, and if you get a court order from that country, you may feel much more confident that conflicts with, you know, uh, your either your values or a court order in your home country, you'll feel much more comfortable not complying with it. Um, actually, in content, this is this is not such a pressing issue. Where it's a really, really challenging issue um, is around uh, uh, surveillance, interception, handing over of data. Um, because you imagine that there's just so many orders of magnitude more sensitive. I mean, to be 
again, not to be um, sort of flippant about it, but ultimately, if you take down somebody's piece of content that they put on your platform, it's, it's not usually the end of the world. And, and often they can just repost the same content later and we all move on. Um, if you've handed over personal data that allows a government to identify who somebody is, that can literally be fatal um, for some people in some countries around the world. And so I think the the toughest conflict of law issues, and there is one, one sort of mega one that's been there, it's a good conflict of law issue, that US law generally is highly restrictive of companies handing over any personal data or, or carrying out surveillance on behalf of foreign governments. Um, and so there where a foreign government says, look, I insist that you give me lots of personal data for these people who've been insulting my glorious lead or whatever it is, a, a US-based company can say, no, uh, actually, I can't do that. I would be breaking American law. That's actually been a very, very powerful defense uh, for US companies. Um, but again, that's because they're US headquartered. US law um, has precedence and go over other laws. But governments don't like it, and a lot of them push it really hard. Uh, they want to get hold of this data. And there are two different cases there. One is that you're prohibited under American law because you're not allowed to give the data out. But the other is, of course, um, that in many cases, there's a mutual legal assistance treaty between these countries, so-called MLAT. It's a horrible acronym. But these MLATs are then supposed to guide the rules and the conditions under which you can hand that data out. But they're all extraordinarily slow and driven by paper-based uh, processes, or at least they were a couple of years ago when I was involved with this, which meant that, that as an American company, we're actually protected by quite a massive bureaucracy around this stuff. Now, you could argue that uh, the second is undermining the first, that there are legitimate concerns, legitimate requests for legal law enforcement data that are being stopped because of the bureaucratic nature of the process. And what you need is actually some kind of comity agreement, some kind of agreement between countries that will allow them to say, I think that your legal protections are you know, quite equivalent with the ones that I offer my citizens, and hence companies headquartered in my jurisdiction should comply with your legal orders after either a perfunctory test or simply as they are issued uh, by a competent authority in your country. Do you think that would be a way to sort of uh, eliminate a part of the jurisdiction issue seems to me. You think that is something that we'll see more of? I mean, that's the direction definitely that uh, people are heading. I mean, the European Union is trying to do this at an EU level. So that um, you know, law enforcement in any EU country could demand data from uh, uh, companies in any other EU country, and as you describe, it would be a very simple uh, sort of process for getting getting hold of that data. And the US has also legislated for it, an ability to make similar bilateral agreements, uh, and was certainly working on one with the UK, where where again, UK and US would agree. Uh, a mechanism for much easier access to data. At the moment, this MLAT process essentially does mean, yes, that you know one country has to send a request that will be looked at by a court in the other country. And uh, the court in the other country would say yay or nay to the release of the data. But you can imagine the reason it's sort of so understaffed is, is that courts struggle to deal with their own <laughs> national workload. And so something that says, you know, some police officer in some far off country is investigating a crime you know between people in that far off country it just happens to involve data in my country like this way down the back of the queue and that's that's natural so um, mechanisms that allow 
that to be dealt with much more simply are being developed. And I think the, the, US, the, the US is going to try and do this, certainly with the UK and potentially the EU. The EU is trying to do it within itself. And then you can imagine if good models are developed, they can spread. And so other countries can, can be brought into that framework. Um, there are, again, real challenges because countries in, in areas like this don't want other countries to dictate their law. And there are different systems. So to give you one example, the UK traditionally has had interception authorized by a politician rather than a judge. And there are some people who say, well, no, it must be authorized by a judge. So you will only make a bilateral agreement if these requests are authorized by a judge. Well, it's essentially saying, look, I want you to change your entire system, you know, to suit me. Uh, and so again, you in this sort of world well, where you can the home secretary authenticate a lot of these orders. Yeah, yeah that's the politician, yeah. So it's, it's yeah. politically authorized. And, and and I've argued this out in Parliament and uh, from the other side, but my my party sort of is offended by this. But there is also a there is a, a an argument to say, look, that um, in doing this, it's a politician taking responsibility for the authorization, and the actions of the politician can be tested against domestic and European human rights law. If you if you have a problem with it, so they are they're not they're not sort of doing this arbitrarily. They're working w- because we are signatories to the European Convention on Human Rights. Any action taken by any politician, you know, if you think it's in breach of the Article Eight right to privacy, you would be able to go after them. So, so there are, there's a different method of safeguards in place. But I say, instinctively, you would think a judge is better. But equally, again, you and I, I'm sure, have come across many instances where we've seen orders for data that have come from judges in countries where you're looking at it and going, yeah. You know that that, that wasn't um, intensively scrutinised against human rights standards. So I, again, not to, to defend any particular uh, politician, but a, a, a surveillance order approved by a British Home Secretary, even though they're a politician, may not necessarily be more unjust than a surveillance order approved by a judge in a country where the same safeguards aren't in place. And and what we're looking at here, and this is this is where it gets interesting, is to try to find equivalence across very different legal systems. So this is the we're just talking about law enforcement data here, and, and that's where sort of the the model or the mechanism in mind is to say, okay, I think that the, the laws in place in your country provide protections that are equal to the ones I have, and I do believe that it would be okay for a company in your jurisdiction to respond to a request from my jurisdiction, given all of these different. Would that be a model you think also for the other fields? You mentioned do you think you can do that for speech for commerce do you think that's viable i mean it can help but again let us think about the the, uh, there's always um what we in the trade we always call the edge cases the hard cases so that make bad law i would point out yeah yeah that's the the classic but (laughs) let's look at one where there is established law um you know a german uh denies the holocaust uh uh, they're, they're living in Germany. They're clearly within German jurisdiction. The platform that they were using to deny the Holocaust is an American platform, um, but they've offended people in Germany. The German police are quite properly investigating. Denying the Holocaust is absolutely not an offence in, in the United States. So should, under uh, some kind of enhanced arrangement, should the American authorities... I'd say, yes, they're very comfortable for the American company to disclose information to the German authorities in relation to something which is not a crime in America. Um, you know, often we have extradition law as a model, but typically under extradition law, uh, uh, you're expecting the crime to be a crime in both countries. 
Now, in this case, we're not asking to to bring anyone from America. The complaint isn't about anybody in America. The complaint's about a German in Germany being investigated by the German authorities. And all they want is the data that they need to investigate that crime. So, again, that's the kind of case I think you still need to work through. And again, if you if you accept it for the Holocaust denial case, what about the Thai Les Majest case? And do we do you then differentiate between those? Um, and this may be where you end up with some kind of American tribunal or some American institution that looks at the incoming requests um, and does say, uh, yes, um, we accept that the Holocaust denial law in Germany is sufficient uh, to allow American companies to disclose for that, but we don't think the less malicious law in Thailand is, or vice versa. But they would end up having to make a judgment on other people's laws um, where these things are not obviously illegal in both countries. But and this is, I think, we've both been involved in a lot of discussions, uh, not least in the Internet and Jurisdiction Forum or Policy Network, etc., with with um, um, with uh, both policymakers and, and other representatives of companies. And, and but it seems to me this is hard. I agree with you; it's a hard edge case. But it seems to me that the, the choice is not between a hard edge case and doing nothing. The choice seems to be between. Deciding hard edge cases, finding commensurability or finding sort of uh, level um, uh, equivalence between different kinds of legislation or going down the path of exorbitant jurisdiction where countries individually say, no, our country's laws need to apply everywhere because that's the only way that we're going to get any of this out. So if we're choosing about this, if we're recommending a path forward, then wouldn't we rather prefer that companies sit down and say, here are the three things that I want you to respect within <laughs> my jurisdiction, the, the sort of core things that I care about through speech or commerce and trade that I think are really important and that I would like to sort of submit as my bid for international jurisdiction rather than have global jurisdiction, which becomes a slowest ship in the convoy problem or a race to the bottom problem. Is there a third choice, or what path do we go down? I mean, I think having having an open discussion and and governments being very um, upfront about what matters and why it matters, I think it's actually important for their own citizens and for transparency of why they're pushing something. And and if it gets to the point where things do break down and they want to ban a service or limit it, I think they actually need to have made their case. Um, so for them to go out there and say this is this, you know. Germany says, "Look, Holocaust denial really matters." American government, you know, that's on you know top of our list for things that we want to sort out in our bilateral conversations around data disclosure. Great, and that and that can be then a matter of public um, debate, and uh, at least we're sort of being explicit and transparent. I think the idea of yeah, we just want you know you to respect all of our laws all of the time or uh is not going to work because we end up in these conflict of law scenarios where it's it's too much but understanding um where something really matters having that conversation and i do think these kind of bilateral conversations are the right way to do it so for, for governments in europe to explain to the u.s government what's most important to them and to, to sit round the table literally and discuss you know, based on human rights principles, the principles of law in, in each set of countries, what is a reasonable outcome? Let's thrash it out uh, as to what's a reasonable outcome, not assuming everyone's going to end up with the same legal code. I mean, that's the whole point of jurisdiction is it's different. And, and, and governments and parliaments have a right to be different. But 
how do we sort of reconcile those differences and, and, and create some kind of working arrangement uh, without smoothing them out altogether? And from a human rights perspective, you would almost want to complement that with transparency and accountability requirements so that, that if, you're, if your jurisdiction extends beyond your natural territory and you're asking for things that are in different countries, you would like to know how is that being used and how much is that actually being used. So you get a sense of, of how the government is using the ability to then, for example, require data from another country. Yeah. Seems, this seems like there's an institutional framework missing as well as a lot of legal clarity when it comes to jurisdiction. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's essential. And, and e- even within the EU, when we were looking at the, the arrangements there, I, I'm not sure, you know, how comfortable uh, people in, in one EU country would be for authorities in another EU country to get their data. Um, and so there needs to be sufficient transparency that they know. You know, if you're living in Belgium and the authorities in uh, Poland want your data because they're investigating something that they think you're involved in, there needs to be a mechanism whereby uh, the data is not just sort of being taken off to Poland without you having any uh, ability to understand that that's going on, and vice versa. So, so I think this transparency is that needs to be built into any process where you're moving things through. Um, I mean, one interesting area uh, we touched on earlier, as well as the speech stuff, this commerce uh, yes. piece of it, which actually I think is, again, adds a whole other layer of complexity, that the internet has created the, the sort of communications mechanism whereby somebody in one country can try and do business with somebody in any pretty much any other country around the world. But typically, actually, when it comes to commerce, there's a whole set of uh, product standards rules and requirements uh there may be sort of qualification requirements if it's a service if it's something like financial services it's hedged around with masses of regulation um and and there again i think governments have a very legitimate uh, interest in making sure that substandard products are not being shipped uh, that these careful structures they built to protect citizens are not being undermined by products coming from outside. You've got things like um, pharmaceuticals, an obvious example where governments have decided what pharmaceuticals should be available freely over the counter, which should require a prescription, maybe very different rules in the neighboring country. So all of that commerce stuff, I think, again, adds another layer of complexity, uh, even sort of more than the speech piece, because pretty much all of commerce exists within some kind of regulatory framework, food standards, pharmaceutical standards, service standards, et cetera, et cetera. So how should we deal with that, though? But let's take the pharmaceuticals example. Um, let's take, uh, uh, you know, there's a, there's a certain kind of headache medicine that's legal in Greece, but illegal in Sweden, or not illegal. It can just be a prescribed medicine in Sweden. And um, a platform allows a commerce provider some kind of shop to set up a shop where you can buy this from greece should the jurisdiction question here uh, be is it legal in the country procuring should it be is it legal in the country selling should it be is it legal to at least offer it from one country to another via the intermediary where how does how would you unpick that yeah so this is an area where in some areas it's been reasonably well developed in other areas it hasn't um, so, so there, there are quite a lot of, sort of gray zones and people like to operate in gray zones. Um, but you're right. The, the basic choices you have is you can make the purchase illegal or you can make the selling illegal or you can make both illegal. Um, and one event you have got with commerce, at least, is you've got the follow the money approach. And so unlike with speech, speech typically is 
um, free as in beer, uh, as in, as in no, <laughs> nobody is paying money for the speech. Somebody's just speaking online. Um, and so they're just talking and people are accessing it for free and off you go. Um, and so there's no, there's no sort of financial path that you can trace. Typically with a commercial negotiation, there's a financial route. And so, again, if you're looking at how this gets regulated, in some ways it's more straightforward in that you can say, again, if you have agreement, international agreement, but you imagine, say, within the EU, there might be an ability to say that the pharmaceutical company in Greece, if we see that they are getting transactions from other EU countries, they're in trouble and we're ex- we expect the Greek regulator to crack down on them. And we, we know that because we can see those transactions coming in. Or equally, if, if people are buying stuff that they shouldn't be buying, again, there will be traces left. Um, and so if it's a, a product where the purchase is illegal, then then if it, as long as it's done by some kind of electronic um, transfer, which will be through an institution that, again, is within the jurisdiction of the country that's concerned, we can usually sort of track that down. So that's one area where it's it's solvable. Um, uh, there is a need, I think, for increased clarity around who's breaking the law when in those kind of transactions. Um, and in some areas, I say it is pretty clear already, and if people are ignoring it. It's, it's not because there's no law, it's because they're choosing to. In other areas, it is slightly grey. Um, and I expect over time, we'll need to come fill, fill in the gaps and make it absolutely explicit um, whether the purchaser of a product... Uh, or the vendor of a product is breaking the law if they sell to particular jurisdictions. So one example where this was made abundantly clear was um, online gambling. Uh, gambling is a, a product, and uh, companies that were not rigorous enough in stopping American uh, people living in the United States of America from accessing their gambling sites uh, were in big trouble. And there were a number of executives, I remember, who got arrested as soon as they set foot on American soil um, uh, because, you know, the courts there had taken a very tough line and said, look, uh, if these gambling sites based in Europe, nothing to do with the American jurisdiction, if they had not sufficiently shut Americans out, then those executives were now liable under U.S. gambling law. And as soon as they came in jurisdiction, um, they were in trouble. Uh, so we have had some examples where uh, prosecutions have happened cross-border. Uh, I think there's been a lot of action in the U.S. over cross-border pharma issues, particularly between the U.S. and Canada. So there is an attempt to sort of get hold of some of this. But, you know, for everything they get hold of, there's probably a new form of commerce uh, that's coming along and will need its own regulatory structure. Yes, let's let's go back to perhaps not speech but media. There is there is a term here that I think a lot of people will have heard thrown around that could be interesting to just spend a few minutes on the country of origin principle. Yes. So the country of origin principle is meant to be a way to resolve some jurisdictional problems. Tell us how. Yeah. So so essentially, it says that um, it's to give clarity to businesses to say that. You you need to comply with the framework in your country, which is the country of origin. If you've complied with that framework, then the country of destination, the place you're sending the goods to, is going to accept that you are compliant. You've done your job, and that's the, the sort of core principle. And and it's an EU single market based principle. It was to say, look, if if somebody in Italy has built a product, c- can they sign it off against with all the Italian regulators? who actually, because it's the EU, will be operating to a common framework and then ship those goods to Germany without having to then go and deal with all the German regulators. 
Um, so country of origin meant sign it off locally and then ship it to anywhere else in the EU. Um, uh, it, it's it's contested, and and in some areas, in particular, um, uh, taxation is the one where this is, I think, most challenged because because I said international taxation kind of worked on a similar principle. It said look, the value is created for a particular product or service in the place where it's built. Um, and so the profits should be booked to the entity where the product was built um, and then taxed in the country where the product was being built. Uh, and then obviously over time, and the internet is a very acute example of this, it may be that there's very large numbers of customers in other countries, the country of destination, uh, and there may be a view taken, well, actually, no, the economic activity is now happening in the country of destination, and therefore that's where the the economic value should accrue and that's where any taxation should take place. So, so this sort of question of both where should you comply and then crucially where is the economic or the taxable economic activity taking place, the, these all sort of come out when we're trying to think about a transaction between uh, two people uh, across an internet service or between an internet service and its customers. So we started out with uh, the ideal vision of the internet as a separate place, a separate domain that should eventually acquire its own laws and its own institutions and its, its own jurisdiction, essentially. And we saw it uh, shot down in, in Paris uh, with the Yahoo case. And then we've seen it then devolve across the different domains that you've mentioned, speech, commerce, taxation. And we've seen that there is a push for global jurisdiction from surprising places like Austria, um, but also other places who want to make sure that their laws are globally applied. We saw that there is an opening to negotiate equivalence and so to say that, well, I, I do think that it's reasonable that some of your laws apply within my jurisdiction, although they are slightly different from the ones that I would apply myself. Now, Let's talk briefly about where we think this, how this plays out over the longer term. Do you think we'll see more international agreement? Will it be sort of forced upon us? Or do you think that it will become much worse before it gets better? Again, I think it'll depend on what's the driving force politically. So we will be, we're squarely in the political domain here. And I actually think the one to watch is the US and EU. Um, you, you know the, the amount of digital business that crosses the Atlantic is huge. I should say now, US, EU, UK, in a sense, is a sort of tri trilateral conversation. But the the most important one is the EU, US by by size um, within that. And so, so I think this is the test over the next two or three years. Will the European Commission and the US administration thrash out a lot of these things so they do resolve questions around? taxation, cross-border delivery of services, law enforcement access to data, uh, privacy regulation, data protection regulation. Will they sort all of that out so they have this mutual respect of different laws in different jurisdictions? Or will they end up falling out on, on any or all of those issues and then end up in a war where the European Union is trying to tax US companies and the US government is retaliating where the, the, there's an attempt to block any data transfers between the two uh, um, uh, entities, uh, where, where uh, law enforcement access is shut down and, and potentially the European Union says, right, now you've got to store all the data in Europe so our law enforcement people can get hold of it. You just imagine all of this sort of becoming in, entirely chaotic. 
And the reason I think the US EU one is interesting is because actually when you strip everything away, they're pretty close in terms of uh, legal values and jurisdictions. Uh, you know, as a describer, it's not, there's a sort of myth that's, oh, you, Americans don't care about privacy. It's just, just not accurate. They they do it differently um, from the European Union. Uh, so so the, the US and the EU, if they can fix it, then you start to see the, the kind of models that would happen. And then, you know, really important um, countries like India, I think would need a similar arrangement with uh, both the EU and the US. And we can start sort of build these, these, these blocks up. Um, that's, that's one, one way in which it goes. The other way in which it goes to say is if the EU US fails, they're not able to get it together. Then I think there's very little hope uh, for others. And then we start to move into the world, which we've described uh, previously in the Splinternet conversation. I think we start to work into a walk into a world where, for all of these legal regulatory reasons, you need different entities in, entities in different jurisdictions. So there wouldn't, you know, there'll be an alphabet ink still, but there'll be an alphabet SA or whatever abbreviation we want for Europe. There'll be a European alphabet and there'll be an Indian alphabet, and they they will have to be much more separate than the current structure where you typically have an American parent company and some subsidiaries around the world these will have to be very very distinct entities just to meet their jurisdictional obligations um and avoid all of these conflicts of law yeah, so you're looking and i like this because you're sort of describing three scenarios one in which the jurisdiction is hashed out and we we look at the difference in our legal systems and they're i think you're right they're smaller than than is usually believed within the us and the european union including the uk um and we, we sort of hash out those differences we say we will accept them and we'll declare equivalence then there's a scenario of course in which you see a greater convergence in the underlying legal systems where jurisdiction matters less and less because the legal systems start to look more and more like each other. And there's some of that happening on the privacy area with the California privacy law and the increased discussion around the federal privacy law now. And then, of course, there's the chaotic scenario in in which uh, neither do we agree on the equivalence of our systems and find a jurisdictional bridge between them, nor do we see a convergence between our legal systems. But what happens is that we break up into this insular archipelago of territories, and we Re-territorialize the internet to a point where where jurisdiction is really not a problem anymore because there's nobody coming from country A to country B. You're just in country A or country B when you're on the internet. Uh, it seems to be a, a less happy solution. Now, um, if you if you were to place a bet, which future would you bet on? What uh, do you not what you hope yeah. for, but what you would bet on? I would bet on the first that people will thrash it out. Um, and I say that again, in spite of sort of living the Brexit experience, uh, um, I do think p- people want to, there's this phrase that we kept using, they want to uh, uh, eat their cake and have it, have their cake and eat it, eat their cake and have it. It's the Unabomber version, which I much um, prefer. <laughs> um, but if they want to they want to eat their cake and, and, and have it, as in they want to be able to assert their national jurisdiction. I don't, I really don't think like the idea of, of acknowledging that you're giving it up is a problem. And I actually think, you know, if you know, if, if you started using language like, oh, it's great that the new privacy laws in America mean that America's adopting the GDPR, I think that probably <laughs> would massively set back the effort of US politicians <laughs> promoting those yes, laws. So not so a good you, idea. Yeah, you you want to feel you strongly have your own jurisdiction. At the same time, there is a recognition that 
um, you benefit hugely from being able to trade in in other parts of the world. You've got you know, companies that really want to do business in other parts of the world, and and again, this is a bit our Brexit experience now. Sticking the friction back in to something that was previously frictionless it is not without pain. And again, maybe that's the other thing to to watch out. Let's let's look at the UK experience of whether we over the next year or two diverge more and increase include more friction or whether we try and row back on some of the friction that's a sort of again interesting sort of parallel example but m- my bet would be that politicians will go for the eat their cake and have it version which is strongly asserting national jurisdiction whilst trying to reach agreements these these sort of mutual respect agreements that allow their businesses to to trade in a pretty open and frictionless way the thing that will take us off in the different path though is i think again politics that if you end up um where where uh, dominant political factions have taken a view that they actively want to shut out the foreign companies uh, and and they're willing to pay the price that their own companies will equally suffer then that could derail the whole thing. And I'm assuming that, that, that people are wanting that trade to happen. When I say I support that first scenario, I can imagine situations in which, and again, Indi- India might be an example where it has a very strong domestic IT environment. And maybe they do get to the point where they go, actually, we, we actively want to reduce the extent to which people in India use foreign services. And we've got great domestic services and so maybe we're a little, little more hesitant to reach these kind of international agreements because it serves our purpose not to. Don't know that, but you can you can sort of see that scenario happening at least with some of the bigger countries. The small countries, I think, like the, their their choice is much more limited. But the big blocks, India, Russia, Brazil, Turkey, China, obviously is going its own path already. They they at least have the option to say. Yeah, I, maybe I'm going to be more hesitant about reaching agreement because I've got great domestic businesses that I want to support. So one last question, because I think this is, is relevant to something we've discussed before. Now, do you think that scenario is likelier um, to sort of get to, to thresh it out uh, or less likely if you were to answer the question about mobile internet instead? with app stores and the ease with which you can ban apps and the ease with which you can sort of splinterize the internet in the mobile setting that's much harder in the kind of web setting that we have been discussing now. Yeah, so so that is interesting because we talked about earlier, I said that the web is default global. I turn it on, it's default global. App stores are not. And that and that is interesting. I mean, app stores have territoriality built in, not not just to the app store, but the fact that mobile phones have territoriality built in, right? In a way that traditional computers didn't. Uh, so you're you're absolutely right. I think in some senses, if governments can exert their control through app stores and mobile phone providers, uh, the mobile phone providers are absolutely in jurisdiction. And interestingly, this is the way that Turkey, um, you know, get, gets or has leverage on internet companies. It says to the mobile phone providers, "You must make internet companies restrict some content, or we're going to order you, Turkish companies in Turkey, uh, to do things. And if you don't, we're going to put your executives in jail." So, pretty, pretty uh, c- kind of compelling case they can make. Um, so, 
mobile phone providers as the primary conduit onto the internet, national, combined with app stores, which have territoriality or or national app stores inherently built in. They are designed to be national and for service providers. And when you upload an app, you choose as a developer whether, right? Exactly, exactly. And and it's just so much more uh, kind of native to an app store to be thinking in territorial terms. Those may be sufficient tools uh, for them to to address most of what they want. Um, It still will leave something like if, if the app is essentially a front end to a service that's entirely outside your jurisdiction. Um, that you know, you may still be left with a lot of these issues, like can I get the data or surveillance, and da, da, da. Um, even if there is a sort of local version of the app, it may not address all of the questions for you. Um, uh, TikTok again, interesting example that came up where you know the the U.S. government and the previous administration was essentially saying you've got to move your business entirely outside of China, um, having a U.S. TikTok app store, TikTok app in the US app store is not sufficient. We also worry about the back end stuff. doesn't resolve everything, but I, I agree. I think it takes us quite a long way um, towards uh, giving governments the tool they need to co- exert the kind of control that they feel they must exert. Jurisdiction is easier in an app world than in a web world. App and mobile, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I think I, I wanted just to sort of just briefly touch on that because I know you've talked about it before. Excellent. Well, I think that concludes the jurisdiction issue of Regulate Tech, and uh, thank you so much for listening. You can find more about the podcast and on related subjects on Richard's website, which is at www.regulate.tech. Notice that domain; it is not geographical. I live in the world of tech it made you know brought a world of hurt to to all of us old jurisdiction theoreticians who thought we would kang our entire argument on top domains national top domains country top domains country code top domains sorry cctlds um and uh, as always keep all of your ideas coming we uh, hope to have you with us next week although it's easter next week so we'll find another uh, recording day um and uh, If you have any questions, ideas, thoughts, suggestions, proposals, don't hesitate. We'd love to hear more from you. And thank you for all the comments so far. And uh, with that, we wish you a happy week. 